over the past seven or eight weeks, we have been going through a study in the book of Revelation, looking at the seven letters that Jesus has instructed the Apostle John to write to various churches throughout the Asia Minor region. And through this, what we have discovered is that when Jesus takes the lid off of the church, He oftentimes exposes or finds, He doesn't create, it was already there, but He exposes it in a very real sense, the issues that are present in the local congregation of called out believers. There are a few examples in this series of letters that Jesus writes where Rather than focusing on what the church should do to improve or what the church should do to repent, Jesus puts His emphasis on what the church is doing right and where they are succeeding. While in most cases He does not strictly condemn the church, but He offers them a a compliment or some sort of commendation for what is going well, He focuses on what the church needs to do to respond. Why do I bring that up this morning? If we were to open the lids up of our own hearts, or our own minds, and expose the realities of the things that we think about, and the things that we focus our attention on, do you think that our Savior, the Lord of our life, the one that has died on a cross for our behalf, would He focus on what you are doing well? Or would He focus on what you should be growing into? You see, I think change is a bad word in our culture. It's become a bad word. In my time when I worked, um, this is recording going on a podcast, so I won't mention the name, but when I worked for a, a big retailer, we didn't use the word change. In fact, our culture discouraged it. You know what we called change? Opportunities. So you'd sit down for your evaluation at the end of the year so that your manager could tell you what you're doing well and what you really need to work on. And he didn't say, well, this is your strengths and this is your weaknesses. He would say, well, your strengths are this, your opportunities. Well, these are what your opportunity is to work on. And I don't think there's a problem with that. I think it's important for us to realize, though, that we're really just changing names and change is not necessarily a bad thing. Because this is the habit of some that we grow into. We hear that we should change, or we hear that we should move in a different direction, or we hear that we should do something that we haven't done before, and we slam on the brakes and we say, that's not for me. We have an opportunity to grow. We have an opportunity to draw closer to Jesus Christ. We have an opportunity to make His Lordship more manifest, more real in our lives. And this is why Jesus' focus in these letters are not just giving them a pat on the back, but telling them what they have an opportunity to grow in. This morning we come to the penultimate letter in this series of seven. That is the sixth letter. The letter that Jesus instructed to be written to the church in Philadelphia, found in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7, all the way through 13. And this letter is unusual. It is the second letter in this series where there is no condemnation. Jesus doesn't have anything bad to say against this church. But rather, He continues to offer them an area where they can grow 
And in many ways, this is reflective of where the church needs to grow today, not just in a, in a broad sense, speaking of the church at large, but speaking of our church in very practical terms. Let us then prepare our hearts before we read God's Word, seeking that the Spirit would guide us not only into understanding, but giving us the strength that we need to apply our opportunity for growth in our daily living. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning with humble hearts, recognizing that we carry with us a lot of baggage from our week. God, we've gone to work. We've spent time at home. We watch TV. We've read books. We've filled our minds with a lot of things. Help me to set those down now. Help me, Lord, to have my mind completely focused upon you. Lord, help me to be aware that as we read the Bible this morning and as we consider its meaning and apply it to our life, that you are at work in giving us this understanding. So we pray with the psalmist that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might be able to behold the amazing truth found in your law. In Jesus' precious name I pray, amen. Pray your Bibles open with me so that you can follow along while I read out loud, beginning in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that, you, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own na new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We begin then in verse 7 in recognizing that this letter along with the others is written not to a symbolic or to a fictitious church, but to a very real congregation that had taken shape and begun to form and covenanted together and was in a city called Philadelphia. Hey, we're all familiar with the city Philadelphia, aren't we? We probably already know what Philadelphia means. It's the city of... You could finish my sentence. Brotherly love, that's right. Philia the Greek word for brotherly love, and Delphi, city or place of, so the city of brotherly love. Doesn't that sound like a great Christian name? I've even heard of churches being Philadelphia Baptist Church. And even the more 
uh, exciting churches that take the word Baptist out of their name and just say they're Philadelphia Church. Isn't, wouldn't that be a great church? A church where brotherly love abounded. A church where the hospitality and the love and affection that we had towards the people that we sat alongside week after week, the people that we prayed for, the people that we were concerned with. Wouldn't that be a great church if brotherly love were one of the describing characteristics of that congregation? This is where I'm going to surprise you. Philadelphia as the city in the first century was not so named Philadelphia because Christians were there. In fact, the city got its name Philadelphia long before Jesus Christ even lived. Long before Jesus Christ died on a cross. Long before the church was established. See, Philadelphia was a city, a place of opportunity. The focus of the city, and if you, if you looked at it on a map, you would find that Philadelphia is located on an imperial post from Rome to the east. And in history, it's called the gateway to the east, the gateway city. And so it led into a place where business was prosperous, where the, you, know, you can think of the Silk Trade Road and all of the, those things that we remember from third grade history. If you can remember back that far, I barely can. It was the gateway into the east, a place for trade. It was a place for opportunity. And it was built with an evangelical purpose. But not by Christians. It was built by the Greeks as a place where Greek culture, Hellenism as it's called, could be implanted in a strategic location so that Greek thought could spread throughout the entire world. Because Greek thought is good for us. You're saying, I don't know, Brother Derek, I don't know if Greek thought's good for us. Our education system today is based off of Greek thought. Most of the things that we look at in the world are influenced by Greek thought. <coughs> the reason why we think logic is important is because of the Greeks. We've carried that throughout history for a very long time. And that is certainly part of the product or part of the effect of this evangelical city, Philadelphia, being founded. Let's set that aside for a second. We know about Philadelphia and we know who they are. But what's it really matter? There's a church here. There's a church that's been placed in this city. That city was founded with an intentional purpose to reach the world. How much more intentional then should the gospel of Jesus Christ placed here and secured and protected by faithful believers guided by the Holy Spirit to take that gospel and use the same intentionality that was used in putting a place to spread Greek thought, to spread the good news, the best news that has ever been available in this world. Here's the city where Christ has, where the Father has deemed in His sovereignty it appropriate that a church should form. Here is this place. It may seem insignificant. It may seem like it doesn't matter. But the Father has deemed it in His sovereign will that a church would take shape here. This city that the things that we should remember about it, it's on this trade route, but unfortunately it's, it's also right on a fault line. It's notorious for earthquakes. This place where there was no stability. In fact, in 17 AD, there was an earthquake that pretty much demolished the city. So you can think in the first century, we're on the later half of that, they had rebuilt some, but the majority of people still had in their memories this great 
cataclysmic earthquake and they lived out in the rural region so that they wouldn't have to worry about buildings and temples falling on them. Here's this city with no certainty, no structure, and Jesus Christ writes to the church there the words of the Holy One, the True One. There's a dramatic contrast, just looking in verse 7, between the city in Philadelphia that did not have a stable foundation, receiving now to the church, which is the foundation of all truth, not Greek thought, not logic, but the church, which is the foundation of all truth, the words of the Holy One. Holy means set apart, means dedicated, means completely one thing. Holy, in this term describing Jesus as perfect, the true one, a secure foundation, everything that is needed in contrast to this wishy-washy crumbling city that was established for the purpose of spreading thought is here the one receiving the letter, the one receiving the letter from him who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. And we have to build upon this. We have this great city of opportunity, but now we have Jesus Christ writing that He is the one that holds the key to all opportunity. Starting to see the picture coming together. Philadelphia is not just a city for Hellenistic thought, but it is a strategic outpost for the kingdom of God. Christ is the one that holds the key to open the door for opportunity. Christ is the one that gives us direction to follow through the open door that He lays before us or closes the door where opportunity does not need to exist. He is the one that guides us, not just by will, not just through His Word, but also through circumstance because He is in control of all things. This illusion in verse 7 at the end to the one who holds the key of David is actually a specific reference to what had been recorded much earlier by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 22 verses 15 through 25 describe a point that was predicted by Isaiah where the Jewish people would be conquered by the Assyrians. Having disobeyed God, having lived in rebellion, just like Christ had promised to the church that we had looked at last week, the church in Sardis, He will come and He will shut the door. He will blow them out. They will no longer exist because God can do that to a church if they're not a church anymore. Israel had rebelled against God. Isaiah had prophesied against this. The people did not want to hear Isaiah's words. Assyria is attacking them. And here is the picture happening in Isaiah 22. After the invasion, the Jewish leaders, do you think that after seeing Assyria coming to conquer them, after seeing the consequences of their judgment, do you think they said, all right, we messed up. Let's go back to God. God, will you please save us? No, that's not human nature. You know what they did instead? They said, we've got a good alliance with Egypt. Egypt will keep us safe. And it gets worse because the leaders in the midst of all of this chaos, the people that were in charge of leading the nation that had been put in these positions, what did they do? They used their position for their personal gain. It's a good thing we don't have politicians that do that today. In all of this, there was a man named Shebna. Isaiah 22, verse 15, you can read about this. I won't read it to you. You can have it for homework. You'll have something to do after lunch today. Shevna was using this chaos for his personal gain. 
causing Israel not to turn back to God, but to depend on their alliance with Egypt in the middle of them being disciplined. This is like, I'm trying to think of an illustration on the spot, and I'm not good at that. So, But this would be like my son getting in trouble for something that he did. Um, going outside and riding on his, his tractor, as he calls it, whenever he's not supposed to go outside. Me calling him in and telling him that he doesn't need to do that, preparing to discipline him, and him saying, oh no, I better get on my tractor and run away from my dad. That's exactly what Israel does. They run back to their own idolatry. They run back to their own foolishness. Shebna uses the chaos for his personal gain. And what does God do? But he throws Shebna out and another man was given authority, Eliakim, becoming a type for Jesus Christ. What do I mean by a type? He becomes the leader that replaces the leader that served himself. Because Christ didn't come among men to serve himself. He came to serve men that those that would place their faith in him would be saved. Here's this great opportunity at the church in Philadelphia. The one who has the key. Like Eliakim. Jesus has taken the authority of Israel. He is the king of Israel. He is the king of the church. And he says to the church, I have laid before you an opportunity in the city of brotherly love. I have laid before you an opportunity to witness to the world around you. He says to the church, moving on in verse 8, he says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door. This is an image used in all of the Gospels throughout the New Testament in particular, continuously repeating that there is an opportunity given and presented to us by God. Acts Chapter 14, verse 27 is the first place where we see this occur. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. It's repeated numerous other times. 1 Corinthians 16, 9, 2 Corinthians 2, 12, Colossians 4, 3. This open door was an opportunity of circumstance, not something that had been manufactured or created. The open door is the opportunity for the church to witness to the lost. I want to pause here for a second and just consider what has become modern and contemporary methods of evangelism and what has always been and will continue to be Jesus' model. It seems like today we're more focused on creating an atmosphere or an opportunity to witness to somebody by contriving through, through hidden motives the true gospel. Let me try to put that in more simple terms. We try to do the bait and switch. We try to say, look at this, you can have a bunch of fun, and by the way, Jesus loves you and he died for you. That's never going to produce mature believers. Jesus' model was there's an open door. Part of that open door means somebody's willing to listen. And if you find somebody willing to listen, you don't let them go until that door is shut by God. 
Jesus' model is an issue of circumstance. It's, a, it's an issue of living with the Spirit guiding us. It's the confidence of knowing that God is behind us. This is the opportunity for the church. The problem is that with opportunity often comes obstacles. And maybe this is why we think change is a bad word. I've said many times just in considering the reality of somebody coming to, to a, a new life in Christ. Think about the things that you have to give up. Sin's fun. If you really give into it, sin's a bunch of fun. To come and live a holy life, to pursue God, you've got to give up some of that. Now, it's not much of a sacrifice if you understand what the, the gift of God is. It's not much of a sacrifice if you understand the wisdom of God in and, and telling us to lead us away from all of these things that it's for our own good. But the reality is people will not change until the pain of changing is greater than the pain of not changing. This is why God breaks people. This is why God leads people into broken circumstances and situations. It's not just to get your attention. Sometimes it's to show you that it's going to be easier to change than to continue to fight Him. There's wisdom in God's law. Maybe the reason we don't like change is because it hurts. There's obstacles present in the text. He says, continuing in verse 8, I know that you have but little power. Having little power is certainly an obstacle. Not having a voice that is heard. Sometimes we get on wrong terms with people and it causes them no longer to listen to us charitably. It's a very real problem that can happen. Sometimes we're misunderstood and people do not seek understanding because it's easier for them to be upset. Sometimes power comes in the issue of, well, I don't have the means to accomplish that. I, I would like to expand. Um, I would like to add a new, new room to my house or whatever it is. How many of us have the means to add a new room to our house? I don't think anyone. Like that, that's, not, that's something you plan for, maybe even finance for. That's a lack of power. A lack of power comes in many forms. But what if, just looking at verse 8, a lack of power is not the church in Philadelphia's opportunity, it's not their weakness, but it is their greatest strength. Jesus repeats oftentimes in the Bibles that, it, or we actually find not, not just Jesus in Jesus' teaching, but all the way back in the Old Testament, actually just in Genesis chapter 6, what was the condemnation that brought the, the flood among the people? It was the people who were mighty in their own eyes. And because they were mighty in their own eyes, they didn't need to depend on anything else. Jesus teaches later on, he says, it is very difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say it's impossible, but he says it's very difficult. Sometimes we explain that away. Why is it difficult? Because it's easier to depend on the money that I have in my bank account than on Jesus Christ by the Lord God in heaven, by the one who is in control of all things to provide for me. Why is it difficult? Because maybe we have acquired power, our voice is heard, and we're able to advocate for ourselves well. Maybe because we're articulate. That's a form of power. 
I don't need to depend on God to take care of this situation. Maybe it's because we're so gosh darn smart we can get in an argument with somebody and win because our logic is superior. That's a form of power. You have to be careful. It could also be a form of manipulation. Looking at verse 8, Jesus says, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. This lack of power for the church in Philadelphia was not an issue of weakness. It was not an issue of insecurity. It was not an issue of instability. It was the church's greatest advantage that they thought themselves weak. The Apostle Paul wrote himself being the greatest of all sinners, being the vilest of men, being the worst of the worst. Christ is my strength. He emphasizes over and over again that when we realize that we are weak, frail, fragile beings, that Jesus Christ is the most glorified in all that we do. I petition you, loved ones this morning, to not consider yourself strong. Consider yourself weak. Consider yourself completely dependent. Consider yourselves a newborn child that cannot get up for themselves, that cannot change themselves, that cannot feed themselves, because it is God and God alone that provides for the needs of man. It is by His universal grace that we are able to live in the world as we do now, but it is still by His will that we are able to do it. At any moment, any sinner, any person that lives in objection to God, rebellion to God, He not only has the power, but He has the authority and right to end that grace. And through God, He is able to give us the strength that we need. I said I petition you this morning, loved ones, not to read verse 8 as their opportunity being their weakness, but that being their greatest strength. Moving beyond that, there's certainly more obstacles that lay in the wake of their potential change. Verse 9, Jesus says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, well, we'll just stop there for a moment. This church is dealing with the exact same thing that we saw the church in Smyrna dealing with in Revelation chapter 2. There are those that claim to be Jews, which are not. And how do we know that they're not? Because they do not believe in Christ. They are not God's people who are causing causing issues for this called out assembly in Philadelphia. There will always be those who object to us. There will always be those that stand in opposition to what God is doing. And it turns out that squeaky wheels or the loud minority or whatever it is are very persuasive and very persistent in their complaints. But looking at this obstacle, the synagogue of Satan, who spiritually persecuted the church, we we recognize that their opposition does not come from man alone. It is a spiritual issue brought upon by Satan himself. The obstacle for the Christian is not being ensnared by engaging with this nonsense. This is the obstacle for the Christian because if we become distracted on a vocal minority, if we become worried about the complaints of those that are advocating for Satan... Our own witness is damaged. It will either cause us not to walk through the door of opportunity that lies before us out of fear, 
or it will cause us to compromise like the various other churches we've looked at so far. I say then, there are two obstacles for this church. One, their weakness. If they recognize that as their strength, that obstacle is no more. The second is vocal opposition. If they do not engage with it, which is different than ignoring it, but if they do not engage with it, they will preserve their witness. And there is a final promise that comes in all of this, continuing in verse 9. Jesus says, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. What are we to do with those vocal minorities, that opposition? What are we to do with those enemies that tell us that what we are doing is wrong? What are we to do with opposition against God's will? Let God worry about it. What does He say? But it's so simple. I will make them bow down before your feet and they will recognize that I loved you. Let God settle the score. This is the promise for Christ's church. This is the promise for God's people. Let Him be the one who fights our battles. Moving on in verse 10, He gives us more than that. He says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. God promises us not just the reality of settling the score with our enemies, who are really God's enemies, but He also promises us Rest in Him. I'm not going to get bogged down with the interpretation of this verse because I know I have a minority view and that doesn't matter. But here's what's clear. Because you have held to my word, because you have been faithful, because you have kept my word about patient endurance and have been long in suffering, because you have allowed yourself to be faithful even through hard times, I will rescue you. God is the Christian's rest. I'm tired of every time I go to a conference, every time I go to a state meeting, every time I go to something that has to do with the work of the kingdom of God, I, I hear the doomsday message that, well, attendance is really down. Attendance is lower than it's ever been. And I don't know where people are in my church. And, well, fall's coming. Maybe they'll show up again. I'm tired of it. God does not call us to be frantic, busy ants. He calls us to work for His glory and rest in His glory. We need to get back to trusting God. Not just in fighting our battles, but in resting in Him who delivers us, who keeps us from the hour of trial, who preserves us in all of this. It is our strength that we recognize we are weak because it forces us to hold fast to what God has given us. Verse 11, he promises he is coming, he's coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Hold fast. If we recognize how weak we are and how desperately we need a Savior, if we recognize the first part of the gospel begins with the fact that we are sinners impossible, uh, uh, who are not capable of saving ourselves, if we come back and we remember that, we remember that and we apply it to the way that we walk with God, not only will it increase the joy of our walk with Him, but I promise you this, it will make us more resolute in our convictions. 
It will remind us of our need to be humble before Him because it will teach us that we must hold fast. We must hold fast to the truth that has been preserved in the Bible. Adding nothing to it. Taking nothing away from it. There is no thought of escapism in this letter to the church of of Philadelphia. Because you have patiently endured, God gives us the promise of rest. The promise of rest that awaits Christians. It does not await the faithless. Those who are wishy-washy, those who are cultural Christians, those who made a false profession when they were eight years old because they stood up at church camp and they raised their hand after the 11th song played during the invitation and the preacher kept asking them to come forward. Those will not experience this rest, but they will be frantic, constantly trying to earn their salvation. Real rest comes in being able to say, I don't know what's going to happen, but God is in control. Matthew Henry said, Those who kept the gospel in a time of peace shall be kept by Christ in an hour of temptation. By keeping the gospel, they are prepared for the trial. And the same divine grace that has made them fruitful in times of peace will make them faithful in times of persecution. Loved ones, if you can be faithful to God when you are not experiencing opposition, you will be able to be faithful to Him when the time of persecution comes. And I promise it will come. Grow in your faith. Commit to growing in your faith. Actually, all you have to do because this is a spiritual issue, commit to to reading your Bible if you do not do that. Commit to praying at a set time every day. Commit to fasting as you begin this. I guarantee, and I'm saying this with a lot of confidence, something will happen this week that draws you away from that. It is a spiritual issue that draws us away from our communion with God. You must be faithful to Him in times of peace in order to endure that and grow past it. And the growth that we experience in that is not just warfare in our own lives, but it is warfare between a sovereign God and a rebellious enemy. God gives us these victory marks. That He would fight our battles, that we would rest in Him, and that we would have strength to hold fast to Him. But He also offers us a final promise. A final promise for the one who is victorious. The word conquer and victor are the same in Greek, by the way. The one who is victorious. Beginning here in verse 12, He says, The one who conquers. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. The final hope that awaits the Christian. Consider the context. Where is this church located? Philadelphia. A city with opportunity. A church with opportunity that had experienced an earthquake recently in its past. That recently, in the mythos of whatever you want to call it, of that 
the people that lived in that area had the imagery, much like we do today. I say Hurricane Katrina, and there's images that show up in your mind, right? You can see the devastation. You can see the people. I, I talk about 9-11. You can see the devastation. You can remember where you're at. I can remember where I was at. I was in the second grade. That's crazy, isn't it? Someday we'll talk about 2020 and the pandemic. You remember where you were at when you first heard about it. First time you saw people wearing masks in Walmart. The city had in their mind the image of this earthquake. For Jesus to say and to promise to those who are faithful that they would become the pillar that held roofs up in the new Jerusalem. What he is saying is the strength of God's kingdom is in the faithfulness of those that are called by his name. Where there's turmoil, where the ground seems to move, where there's insecurity, God promises as the final reward, the final crown or the final victory for those who are faithful to make them steadfast, resolute, unmoving, unwavering, committed to Him. This isn't just a testimony of what our faith can be when we trust in God, but it is a picture of God's faithfulness to you when you place your faith in Him. He promises us enduring security for all time. He promises that our salvation, once secured by faith, never runs out. He promises that once we are in His hand, no one can pluck us out of it. He promises us eternal salvation secured for eternity last. I don't know about you, but have you ever wondered if you're really saved? That question bounced through my mind as a young Christian so often. How do I know I'm really saved? And Well, I've messed up so bad. Are you sure God still loves me? You know what the end of this letter in Revelation chapter 3 says? Once you're saved... There's nothing you can do to lose it. Why? How can you say that? What do you mean there's nothing I can do to lose it? You did nothing to earn it. God did all the work and by His divine grace and His glory, He's called you unto His kingdom. He's opened your heart. He's made you realize that you're a sinner in need of His Savior. He's presented you with the gospel and He's asked you to respond. And if you've responded at any point in your life, and I promise you'll remember when it happened for you, if you've responded, then all you have to do is walk through that open door that Christ has laid open for you and know that once you walk through it, the door behind you shut because there's no going back, because your life is on mission, not only to witness to the lost around you, to use Christ's methods to pursue opportunities to witness to people, but because of your faithfulness in God, you experience transformation. You don't have to worry about going back. Father in heaven, I thank you this morning. I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the way that I thank you for the way that you've guided us this morning, Lord, that we might understand your word. 
I want to take this opportunity, Lord, to pray for those that are with us. Pray for those that are able to gather this morning and that are here. God, I pray that you would do your work in their hearts right now. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue this message where I have left it off. Help us, Lord, not just to hear this and to turn away from it and to live like we did before we came into this place, but to apply it to our life in a meaningful way and to know that we have security in you and to live our life for your purposes. I ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.